Welcome to Ask the Rabbi with Rabbi Menachem Creditor, a Jcast Network podcast. Join Rabbi Creditor each month as he is asked questions about Judaism, Jewish ritual, and Jewish thought by members of his community at Congregation Nitivot Shalom in Berkeley, California, and tries to provide understanding and deeper meaning in Jewish life and learning. For more information about Rabbi Creditor, please visit menachemcreditor.org. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. everybody, uh, to those out there in wherever you are, welcome to Nativot Shalom, glad you are here. Um, I'm Menachem Creditor, and we are going to do some learning. I, I also just wanted to say thank you for the Wednesday night before Seder, interrupting <laughs> all the other things I'm supposed to be doing, because the truth is, I, I feel like Seder is not an episode, it's not actually something that happens on a night, it's a big process. And so as, as I even, you know, made the title of tonight's conversation, which is Jewish Wrath and the Haggadah, I felt like Seder had begun, which was a much more gentle beginning than waiting for people to arrive. And so my, my house might not be kosher for Pesach, but I feel like we're already touching the Seder. Um, and I thought we could open up with a general question based on experience, and I imagine some of us have more and some of us might not have as much. But thinking back to um, your own experiences at Seder, whenever they began, um, do you have a memory of going to the door? And if you're comfortable sharing it, what is that memory? You don't mean for Elijah, you mean for pour out your wrath. No, actually, you could answer for the Elijah one because oh. they're, they're, the, they're the same moment, even though emotionally they feel potentially different. So without getting into the language of the pour out your wrath, which I think is connected, what is the experience of going to the door that anyone remembers that they're willing to share? Interesting. I mean, just to hold on, hold on, holding on to each one of us as we say it. What a powerful thing! I don't see it going down, right? To believe that the measure of the wine is going to go down because Elijah's there, and I, you know, I don't know if you have the version of that, but you know, I wanted to run to the door, but run back quick enough that I'd catch whoever, <laughs> you know, the grown-ups at the table drank the drank oh. the wine, right? But so other people, um, what other what other people drink? <laughs> well, should, I, should I ask what the dog's name was? No. What was the dog's name? Lori Lynn. But it's Hebrew name. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah. Um, our satyrs were on Avenue T in Brooklyn, and um, both the people who led it were uh, from Poland originally. And so everyone in the apartment building was Jewish. And it was a six-floor, very small apartment building. And what always struck me was um, when we were leaving to go back to our um, apartment in Brooklyn, 
uh, maybe Bayside at that point, um, how everybody's door was open in the apartment house. All mm. floors, all mm. doors. Mm-hmm. And I was very touched by that because growing up in New York, most doors are always closed. Mm. And for everyone in that apartment house to feel safe enough mm. to open a door unanimously, um, for me was such a um, uniting experience and a feeling of communal safety that, you know, as a Jew, I didn't always feel or experience um, out in the world. So it's just uh, very profound, that that particular aspect of having that door open, Mm. you know. Wow. That's amazing. Mm. I remember a three-year-old guest of ours running out calling to Eliza <laughs> and how it made us all think, you know, I mean, his belief, his joy, uh, his wonder uh, was really special. Well, I think that at every Seder I've been to, I knew that Eliza wasn't coming in, but I felt the fear reenacting the fear from a thousand years ago that opening the door, they could come in. And I think I still, you know, it's it's Berkeley that you you go, no, but just, I think it's the reenacting of the fear for me, just like reenacting the slavery and the liberation. Mm -hmm. I, I would say that was the culmination for me of the Seder as a child because the questions everything that was geared to children and the Afrikoman was geared and even as a child I knew that was all about being a kid but opening the door for Elijah was a very um, important job to do and as a little kid, I just felt the unknown of, of, of wonder and anticipation and hope and to open the door to the dark as a child and have that job. It was the most important thing in the Seder to me. And it was scary to open the door. I was short, you know. It was <laughs> like, okay, I'm going to do it. And adults didn't walk with you to open the door. It was your job to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it didn't, it didn't matter if the wine went down. <laughs> it, was, it was my encounter with an unknown that was very real. Mm-hmm. I appreciate people sharing one of the things that, that I think will be important for us to wonder about is, you know, for any of the experiences we have, and for some of us, this is a very new, a new ritual to step into the Seder itself, let alone the content of it, um, that it has evolved over time, and it wasn't one thing. You know, just today, uh, we were, some of us were studying the, the part of the Torah that we read on the first day of Pesach, and it was, you know, the command... We read it recently. This month, this is what happened. This is what you do. These are the rituals. And in it is a very powerful sort of premonition as to some of the emotionality of this. We are in our huts, our, in our slave quarters, and we are going, we're commanded to eat our roasted sacrifice, an animal that is holy to the uh, nation that has enslaved us. Not only that, to identify our homes with blood, and as opposed to thinking about the way that um, it's been depicted in, in movies and in, in cartoons and things like that, it's not a mark on your door. It's actually a seal on your door. The mezuzah is all three side, all three parts of that doorway. And in a certain sense, we're hermetically sealing ourselves in. And so thinking about opening the door, uh, might have been, at the back, might have been you. Someone mentioned today, just, the, oh no, I think it was you, Charlene. Um, that as a birth canal, as a moment of birth, but it's still in that fragility, in that scariness, the outside world. If we take Jewish legend to heart, right, what happens in the womb that we are taught by an angel all the wisdom of the world. 
And as we are born, we're smacked, actually says the legend, on the frenulum right here. And then we forget. But we know we're going to forget. So even the fear of forgetting everything that was knowable and leaving the womb where everything was fine. So it's not to say that I had this in mind as a child or any of us have this in mind when we go to the door, but the truth is, now that I'm not a child, I, I am scared to open the door. You know, And I think that it's not only a Jewish statement, but at the Seder it is a Jewish statement to make. And it's not to say that we're supposed to be afraid or we must be afraid or we should always be afraid. Clearly it's not a desideratum. We don't want it. But it would be hard to ignore the world that we're in in that moment. And I think that we don't, in fact. So the question is, how do we experience it? Here's what I would like to suggest. Around the table are a bunch of Haggadot. One of them, this is my childhood Haggadah. The Rabbinical Assembly published this. It is uh, called the Feast of Freedom. The illustrations are just magnificent, and probably that's because I'm seeing them with four-year-old eyes. Um, and it is pervaded with Soviet Jewry language. Um, and that very much that defined you know, my childhood. This was, this was our work. Um, and in that spirit, a lot of the work I think that we do today, not only behalf on behalf of Jews, but beyond, they're touched by it. But our Haggadot around this table are touched. This was uh, it's a Reconstructionist Haggadah. We have one that is an art school, an Orthodox one. We have one uh, written by Sarah's mom. The women's, uh, women's Haggadah is here. Um, we have many different Haggadot. Um, let's open a Haggadah. Choose one. And we're going to look for the part of the Haggadah that is toward the end. Um, if you have this one, you don't have to. This is the illustration for the page of <laughs> Pour Out Your Wrath, which I want to thank Sai for pointing out um, the citation in the Tanakh in the Hebrew Bible because the placement in the Haggadah happens fairly recently, according to Jewish standard history, right after the medieval uh, period or during it. Um, but the Pour Out Your Wrath section, which happens... Um, happens after Birkat Mazon, it happens right before um, Hallel. Um, it is straight out of Psalms. And so what I'd like us to do is to open to the page that you might find. You might find in your Haggadah it's not there. In fact, that's, that's a really fascinating thing to notice, its absence. But to hear its original language and then to begin the conversation. So I want to hear the language. And then not only should we compare translations, I'd like us to respond to them. A Haggadah is the kind of text that Martin Buber would have had us study over and over because it is an inherently and internally dialogical conversation. It has a pedagogic intent. This is where we go. But it is also a conversation encoded. And every generation adds its imprint. So here is uh, the JPS translation, the Jewish Publication Society translation of the text in front of you. Let's do, I'll do the Hebrew first, and then I'll read this translation. And if yours departs significantly, I'd love just to hear what the translation is. So here's the Hebrew. Shvul chamatcha al hagoyim, el hagoyim, asher lo yedaucha, ve'al mamlachot asher bishimcha lo karau, ki achal et Yaakov et naveu heshamu, shvoch alehem zamecha v'charon apcha yasigem, tirdof be'af v'tashmidei mitachat shmei Adonai. The translation here is, Pour out your fury on the nations that do not know you, upon the kingdoms that do not invoke your name, for they have devoured Jacob and desolated his home. Do not hold our former iniquities against us. Let your compassion come swiftly toward us, for we have sunk very low. And just so you know, that's not in here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is fascinating to hear where the citation it does not continue. So where the Tanakh continues, where Psalms continues to say, don't hold our sin against us. That's not here. So how powerful that in this text we point at the them, mm -hmm. but not at the us, even when the original context began to be self-reflective as part of the cycle here. So let's look for differing translations. Curious, what, what do you have? And if you could just hold up your Haggadah, if you don't know the citation, I'll just well, name which one it is. This is not a translation. This is just the Hebrew. Uh -huh. it's, by, it's a repo, reproduction of a... Um, uh, Haggadah printed in Offenbach, Germany in the 18th century. Uh, 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 1722. Um, and 
here's the the um, you know the incipit of uh, if you will uh, for the Pope, uh, yeah. which is you know very very popular in incipit. So I don't know what the uh, uh, intro not not intro beginning uh, of the of that passage. Yeah. Really good. Yeah, it's as if the headline is "Pour it out!" Yeah. Exclamation point, and yeah. then you get the text. That says it's something. Prominent. Yeah, it's it's no more no less prominent than other major portions, but it is right up there. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, this one, which is the Hillel Haggadah, mm -hmm. instead of the part Jacob and his destroyed his habitation, this says. <coughs> Wiping out the places where we peaceably live. Where we peaceably live. Which makes it about us, not about Jacob and what Jacob did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And adds that we were peaceable. Right. Right. Well, peaceable, and I would say innocent is the other word for yes, that. Yes, innocent. Yeah. yeah, they are bad, we are innocent. Yeah. Others? This opening here has a particular twist to me. Yeah. Um, and you'll notice Steve's translation is really funny. <laughs> and uh, it doesn't refer to Gentiles, it refers to heathen, which is good. Right, al Hagoyim. Yeah. Right, heathens is not the same as Gentile, but actually neither of them is the translation of yeah. Goyim. Goyim is nations. Yes. But okay. once we retranslate nations, in maybe not even pejorative, but once we use a different word, it, it's otherness that has a value. Yes, well, it's actually the three citations, Psalm 79, and then Psalm 69, and then from Echa, from Lamentations. The, the end of it actually feels a lot like Echa, feels a lot like Tisha B'Av's language. Yeah, sure. Other translation, does anyone have a significant difference? <laughs> How did your mom do it? <laughs> Uh, it's really, it's, it's, you know, sort of a rewritten of it, so mm -hmm. it doesn't follow the, exactly the same thing. It comes at the very end of the Seder, um, under the wings of the Shekinah, the spontaneous desire and song. Soon, say the mother, someone is, um, no, the women Seder is ended, asked the simple daughter. Soon, say the mother, someone is waiting for us. The mothers and daughters open the door. Miriam Hanabi was it's sung to Miriam Hanabi instead of Eliyahu. Um, and then the last line is Miriam enters for the first time. That's very powerful. For many of us, we have a Miriam's cup uh, at the Seder. And where to place it is such a powerful question because should it be associated with this kind of a language? And many of us have a parallel language, Miriam Hanaviyah, which fits the Eliyahu Hanavi language too. So Elijah the prophet, Miriam Hanaviyah, even s with the syllables, with the way that the song works, it's perfect, but the language is so different, the intent is so different. And since that's an intro to the meal, and this happens at the end of the meal, right. Right, it's a very different placement as well. It's a distancing. So with every new symbol that we include on the Seder plate, some of us have an orange to signify inclusion. It's a tradition that goes before Susanna Heschel, but she is the one who really did make it uh, a new tradition that permeates uh, Jewish tradition. Some had, uh, in the name of fem feminism and in the name of inclusion, before the orange was used, uh, a breadcrumb, uh, a crust of bread, because it's the ultimate statement of, you. this doesn't fit here. Well, I don't fit here. So even the symbols of what is not included. So the fact that we have this language, pour out your wrath, and the fact that we have an Elijah's cup associated, remember that Elijah is going to announce the coming of the Messiah. So this language that we recite, or that's in the Haggadah, some of us do recite it, um, it actually tinges that moment with a kind of emotionality that is messianic. It is a specific kind of messianism because Judaism is bigger than one vision of the world to come. 
But if you take this liturgical arrangement and you associate it with a ritual of Elijah's cup, leaving behind a, a childhood mythic imprint of it, which I don't think we should leave behind at all. We'll bring that back in a moment. Um, it's scary, but it's not scary for us. It is a moment, actually, and I wish I could say it's a moment where all our doors are open and our experience of safety. <coughs> it's actually a feeling of comeuppance. It's a feeling of justice. It is a feeling of, if not vengeance, justice. They hurt us so much, is what this text says. God, you hurt them. Be on our side for once. It's a, it's a very, very primal cry. And so when we open the door, and I, I didn't think about this as a child at all, to be honest, but when we open the door knowing that, or, and now I speak as a parent, sending my child to open the door while we say this, I mean, it is, it is quite an emotional moment. So the question is, I'm not even asking the question, should we? I'm asking the question, what does it mean? The Hartman Haggadah and many others, the Hartman Haggadah is called a different night, and uh, their use of, actually it's an ancient uh, liturgy that w just wasn't included in Haggadot, is shvoch ahavatcha alagoyim, pour out your love upon the nations. Right? And there's a specific response. They have it side by side. So they don't excise the one, but they layer it with another. And just today, I'm not going to hand this out just yet, but a teacher and friend of mine, Erica Brown, who is just a scholar and author, a wonderful, wonderful person, um, has a piece in the New York Jewish Week called Pour Out Your Love? Question mark, where she says, you know, in past decades, fewer and fewer people want this reminder of a world of anguish for the Jews. Revenge and justice are draconian words of the past. They seem uncivilized and uncouth. We don't need to go there anymore. Pour out your love. If God is love, then let positive and self-affirming emotions spill out over the world, blanketing us in dizzying embrace and affection. And then she says, you imagine this is where the lead-up goes to, it's a lovely sentiment, cozy and warm, but hardly what we can say with any real authenticity this year. And she points to European anti-Semitism. She points to a lot of uh, hatred against Jews that's taken place around the world this last year. Um, and so then she writes uh, a formulation where she includes some of that in a modern liturgy for the moment. Um, and I'm not saying we should say it, but I'll share that in a moment. Question? Yeah. Um, does she also, well, it seems to me there's the same problem with the end of the Purim Megillah. Correct. And so are there other... Well, name, name the problem. Make it explicit. Well, at the end it says, and after, after we hung Haman and all his 12 sons, we then went out and looted and murdered everybody, and then everyone in the shul cheers. <laughs> so or as the person, I don't know if you were here, but when, uh, when Joel was reading, he had a Facebook conversation leading up to Purim saying, I'm reading that chapter. How do I handle the violence? Yeah. And some suggestions, including Rabbi Mike Rothbaum, whose, yeah. whose new tradition we implemented, had a banner saying, we do not endorse, <laughs> while we're reading it, we do not endorse the violence depicted in here as appropriate for fulfilling. Right, it was a very like. <laughs> there's, well, a, there's a similar. I'm sorry. Well, I just want to say so we yeah. now have the problem that there's two holidays whose stories end with um, a sentiment of righteous violence. Oh, I don't think it's two. If we look at the if we look at the haftarot for Sukkot, it's not that Sukkot the narrative has it, but the haftarot absolutely point to the end of days and battles. I mean, there is language. Mm -hmm. That, that touches so many Jewish moments based on what we could understand historically. Right? We, I, I, don't think, I don't think that anyone would suggest that the trauma of Jewish history um, didn't happen and that the liturgical choices of those epics don't make sense. I think the question for us is related to this question today, which is, I pray that we're peaceful. We aren't always peaceful, and I pray that we uh, never have the uh, inclination to be violent, but we aren't powerless. We aren't powerless in the world. And so the question is, well, I have locks and an alarm on my home, but I don't have locks and an alarm on my home because I'm a Jew. 
I have locks and alarm on my home, and that means that there is actually a feeling of, I don't know if I'm safe, I want my family safe. And there are moments, to be very clear and to be very vulnerable in, in, in this sharing, where actually because I'm a Jew, I am concerned. Um, too much has happened in our world in very recent memory for me to, to be so naive as to not imagine that Jews are particularly vulnerable in certain moments. Um, but I'm not powerless. I'm not powerless. And in this corner of the world, it's not to say that the system is perfect and that there isn't anti-Semitism, but I know that I can call the police. I know that we actually have connections that that give us a sense of security. In France, I don't know that I would say the same thing at the moment. Um, there are plenty of corners of the world, in Amsterdam, the Denmark, Bulgaria recently. I mean, we can name the places in the world. So one of the challenges I think that we face is, well, we aren't powerless, but we are also still targets sometimes. And so what do we do with that? So I'm curious for our takes around it. I do have my own thoughts, but I think that a Jewish experience is bigger than one person's thinking. So how do you think about this? How do you, how do you grapple with it? And, and let me just say something that might be unnecessary. I'm hoping that as we share, we're not going to say, and you can't, and you shouldn't. I'd like it to be I statements. This is how I, I can't deal with it. This is, how I, this is how I recite it. This is my struggle. Let's give each other space, pretending this is that Seder where we tell our own stories and somehow stand together while we do. Can I ask one question? Yeah. Second question. This piece of text does not um, imprint itself on you. It's been described by yourself before. Because this comes just before we, before we open the door? Um, we say it as we open the door. We fill Kos Eliyahu. We're getting ready for the fourth cup. So many people do it right at... And then we're saying Eliyahu. Yeah. But Eliyahu, that, that song is not in the Haggadah. In some Haggadot it is. It's, it's in this it's not, one. It's not in this one. Interesting. Yeah, it is in this one here. Let's see what it says. But what's, what really stands out for me at this moment in the Seder is not this. It's the song that I have with which to me is the most poignant mm-hmm. melody mm. and the most moving. It, 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 to me, it, it's, I mean, there's several songs throughout the liturgical year, including Shabbat and everything else, which capture, for me, in melody and words, what it means being Jewish and what it means to be in that position. And, and I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I understand all the lyrics mm-hmm. that I have, but speaking of what I do understand, it's not a song of condemnation of anybody else or measure. It's a song of longing mm-hmm. for something better for us all. And that's really what, you know, that's what it's all about. Not, not take away from the question that you just... You not at all. And in yeah. fact, one of the beautiful things that comes out of what you said, and you said it explicitly, is that the melody does that. Isn't it, a, isn't it a powerful thing just to name that the melody evokes that kind of an emotional response? And, and by the way, I share it very deeply. That melody does things to me also. Um, but that it isn't the words. It isn't even the character Eliyahu. Because, yeah. right. you know, having, having recently spent a lot of time because of my daughter's bat mitzvah on the haftarah of Kitisa, you know, Eliyahu's a complicated character. Yeah. You know, and so... It's not actually who he was, and it's not actually the text. It's the experience. And it might also be that opening the door is its own ritual that defies these words. My question for us, and it might be a different question as we each think about it out loud, is what's happening in my heart when I open that door? Or what's happening in my heart when I, uh, it's hard not to be emotional about this, when I hesitate to send my child to the door? Which, because of the reality that this text reflects, I do. I really do. Imagined or not, I do. And that is a place that I think liturgy holds us sometimes imperfectly and sometimes so imperfectly, even when it's understandable, that it would guide us in a way that doesn't help. So the challenge of this text, I think, is is profound. Is profound. It isn't only about what I existentially, you know, how I cope with this. It's the people around me and the people who look to me for guidance, especially children. So let's let's take a moment and just share where we are. Not everyone has to respond, but this is this is yours too. There's so many things to say. Really, uh, I'm looking at the original psalm now. Really, I think for the first time I think we did a couple of years ago. 
um, uh, and there's something wrong uh, <laughs> because it's it's about power, as you said before. It ends with wherefore should the nations say, where is their God? Uh, which is gets back to stuff that happens in Torah all the time between Moses and God, saying, uh, if we do this, they're going to say, right. you know. Uh, and God says, you're right, the neighbors. Yeah, the neighbors, <laughs> absolutely. That's part of what this is all about, and it's right. really about we're asking you to take care of us in a number of different ways. One is the pouring out of the wrath, and the other is the forgiving of our sins, but basically you have to act because we right. need help. Right. It's a call for help. It is, and using your language, it's so fascinating, right? The emotional God, right? So the last two verses of the psalm pay back our neighbors sevenfold. Our neighbors, I mean, it is that language for the abuse they have flung at you, O Lord. Yeah at us, therefore at you, then we, your people, the flock you shepherd, shall glorify you forever for all time. We shall tell your praises. Your praises in Hebrew, Hallel, mm -hmm. which we begin right oh. afterwards. Yeah. How powerful that it works within that narrative, actually seamlessly, especially when you understand the context. Right. right? The placement here is fascinating, and how seamless it would be if you had the whole thing is also interesting, and that it's not there. Yeah. It would be much better if it had sing your praises. I mean, that would be perfect. It's out of context. Right. It's Emotional out. context, it's in. Yes. yes. But the placement also, just, uh, sorry, I, I don't mean to say so much when I find it, everyone wants to speak, but we're saying it when we're, our bellies are full. I mean, there's also something so different about that <laughs> moment. As opposed to carpas, you know, which some of us, you know, thank God, you know you're not supposed to be hungry. Once you get carpas, some of us actually enjoy really having a lot of carpas. <laughs> but I remember as a child not having a lot of carpas and being starving by the time. So if I said this while I was starving, scarcity would be in the air. It's different. Wow. I'm going to... I feel very differently. I feel the Haggadah would not be valid if we did not recognize that there are our people and our people who have experienced this experience of being helpless and powerless and having enemy forces squeeze the life out of them. And I'm grateful for this paragraph because it doesn't say, give us the weapons and we'll go out and murder them. It asked God hmm. for justice. Hmm. And I can't even imagine what would a Haggadah do if we did not give our people voice who were in a place where this is true. That's the way I feel. I can't, I've never, I've never asked my dad, my parents, because I know they observed, they had someone say the Haggadah in the camps, in the ghetto. How did they feel? Didn't they call? I hope we're never in a place, but I honor the place of this in this Haggadah because it has been true way too often in our history and there was no human being to help. Uh, this one says, let wrath pour upon those who oppress any of your people and upon all who call upon your name to justify bigotry and hatred. Let their own deeds consume them and the fruit of their works find them. Let their evils be wiped away from beneath the heavens of God. I can't agree more. That's such a terrific thing to hear because I've talked about people as in individual evil people, mm -hmm. but most of the other translations are the nations. there are nations, there are there's us, the Jews, and then there are all these other nations who we personify as good or evil, and it mm -hmm. seems to me that's another <coughs> dilemma because I don't think most of us think anymore that there are evil peoples 
although there may be evil people. I mean, uh, yes, there were righteous Gentiles here, but nations stood by, nations perpetrated. What should someone do? At least let their anguish find voice in the whole body. And, and, hmm. and, and I think the placement is amazing because we open the door, despite our anguish, to Elijah not daring to give up hope. And then we find a way to praise right after. We're not asking, give me a gun so I can do them in. Hmm. Here, here's, here, here it is. Vengeance is not mine to take. And, and the fact, you know, you said, so, so people, I think the last line, beseeching God, what power do we have? We say, please remember us so that the other nations do not scorn and say, we mean nothing to God. I mean, it's, 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 it's so raw, it's so real, and it's so important that it's here. That's my feeling. I'm, I, my feeling. <laughs> well, you translation. Well, this I, is. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't find this comfortable. You know, yeah. When I first started talking about my phone coming to the host, I was like, I found this one. Totally damaging. But we're not friends. Right. I'm the friends who are here. I said it was, you know, I said it because I said it was something that the experience of what it means to me and their relationship. But they're good people. Yeah, but good people, right? Does pe good people equal those who don't know your name, those who do know your name? The, the text here, and I mean, to Judith's point also, Hannah Arendt's um, uh, essay on, on universal responsibility where she analyzes the Nazis versus the German uh, actual armed forces, right? That there was a difference at first for deniability purposes, and then as the war seemed to be going against the Germans, there was an integration so that it wouldn't be discoverable who actually was a Nazi versus who was a German military person. She does an incredible analysis from a place that's very controversial. But what's really powerful to think about is, is it a people or is it people? You could look in today's world at a group, um, you know, people who are concerned about the current negotiations with Iran might not say Iranian civ uh, uh, civilians are the ones I'm worried about. There is a very big difference sometimes between the way nations conduct themselves and the way individual people are victim to the way nations treat each other. Right? And so that's true in the United States, that's true elsewhere in the world for the Jewish people. And that is one of the big questions. It's one of the things, Charlene, that I hear from you in a really powerful way. This is the Jewish people, capital P, speaking through time. Capital P meaning this is our people. This is not individual Jews. This is Jewish peoplehood asserting itself through history in the ritual of the Seder. Recent chapters amplify that an infinite number of times. And so one of the challenges I think um, that really does hit Berkeley and other places as well is a deep notion of our own primal roots. How to channel that forward is a different question, but that it's there is sometimes itself a conversation that doesn't happen easily here. So the question is the roots that would call our attention to where this comes from and then our responsibility as part of a people still to channel it forward because we are the same people, but our circumstance is not the same. It repeats. It is a cycle of history I actually do feel. It makes me afraid sometimes. And it is true that sometimes it feels different. So I want to go around to people who haven't yet been able to speak. Let me give people a chance to sign.
there are, there are two things I, I don't want to not plug the, the, uh, the microphone as it were. Hmm. One is that within the Haggadah itself, we are to experience that night uh, of, of liberation uh, of uh, when the destroyer comes along and releases all the others, firstborn but not ours. That's as experience. That, that whole thing is as experiential as one can get. I think the um, Shafok uh, recitation is also been described here as an experience. It's an experience moment. For me, it's not quite the same, right? Because I grew up, fortunately, very sheltered in Berkeley. Uh, the Holocaust was, yeah, it was over there, but it wasn't me. Uh, uh, and so I don't have the gut response that many others do uh, in terms of the experience that Shafok uh, elucidates versus that which the um, the Seder itself is supposed to elucidate in telling of that night uh, when Adnan uh, and the angel of death came by. The other is uh, Nazis and German soldiers who became co-opted, if you will. Does anybody here not know about the Stanford jail experiment? Yeah. Stanford jail experiment. Yeah. Everybody does? No, no, Sharon, Sharon. Oh, right. uh, many years ago, 40, 50 years ago, <coughs> a psych uh, faculty person at Stanford set up an experiment. He had made a, a, a mock jail, a basement of some building, and he assigned, he got a bunch of students who were willing to go along with the experiment, assigned some of them to be prisoners and some to be guards. Oh, that one. Yeah, that one. And the behavior, and each had their roles as prisoners and guards. And as the very few days went by, the guards began brutalizing the prisoners. Really, I mean, there, there, there were there were experiments to test it using you know uh, electric shock uh, or, or, or faux electric shock. So, uh, 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 but the guards became just as brutal as concentration camp guards. I mean, there was actual harm being done, but their actions were those devices actually live instead of being false. There would have been some very seri seriously injured faux prisoners. We can, in other words, we all can take on the mantle of that uh, uh, role if we are placed in a position where it's appropriate. It has nothing to do with our huma inherent humanity or lack thereof. Okay, so that's, that's my, my thoughts, really my thoughts on, on this fascinating topic. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Look, I think uh, children are at my Seder and it rarely goes here. Um, what I'll say is that Primo Levi comes to mind, if this be man. Um, Victor Frankl, in terms of what meaning means and how different people um, survived. Uh, I would say that, you know, full respect to the way that we each experience things. Um, I didn't have direct ancestors in the Shoah, and from my gut, I'm there me um, and I don't know that we're called to be in trauma together um, but I do think that the Haggadah demands connection to those moments and one of the really powerful ways that I remember noticing the different translations of the beginning not of this the beginning of the Haggadah when we start telling the story if you know the, the Hebrew, it's actually also a quote from, from Torah, Arami Oved Avi. So Arami Oved Avi 
is alternatively translated, well, it's more literally translated as my father was a wandering Aramaean. But the way it is then translated using a Midrashic lens is the word oved instead of wandering is destroy. An Aramean sought to destroy my father. And that Aramean is Lavan. Right? And it automatically shifts the kind of narrative to be in the attack and defense mode. And I think in that Midrashic sense is what we do when our story begins to feel like that. We begin to tell our stories like that, even when they weren't originally like that. So let me, let me ask other people if they have thoughts about this one paragraph. I find it to be not just heavy, I find it to be very, very immobilizing, actually, in a certain sense, if we allow it to dictate what, where we go with it. So I'd just like to ask us to be brave, just to take a few moments and see what we share, see what comes up. And I don't expect, at the end of our conversation, for anyone to be able to tie it with a ribbon. That wouldn't be authentic to Pesach, wouldn't be authentic to Judaism, and it wouldn't be kind to each other. So no ribbon coming. Let's see if the conversation continues a little bit. Sarah. So with that, you have to think really hard. And your mind could be similar or ambiguous. And that's what always evoked that for me was in every generation there were multiple generations. Right. And you know, and <laughs> among liberals at a table that doesn't go over well. But I, I thought that a way of translating it would be in every generation, uh, that it's incumbent on every generation to struggle with the, the questions of, of justice that this gives rise to. It's not just what the Egyptians were after, but those people who who raised power over um, over possessions um, will always be there, and every generation now needs to ask the leadership to speak to them. I mean, it's beautiful, <laughs> right? From a place of the universal striving of Judaism and hopefully of, of every tradition and of every not tradition, um, that speaks so much to me. I don't have so much a response as much as a question, you know, what would it be like to be in Copenhagen right now as a Jew, mm-hmm. trying to feel that? What would it be like to be in Paris right now as a Jew, to try and feel that? Because my child goes to Jewish day school now and would be in guarded by machine gun wielding armed guards because and so it's not to say that the universalistic striving shouldn't be the thing that the Seder makes me sing about but it might not be my emotional place and then the question comes and I think it's a very big one where is the place of tribalism for the Jew Mm -hmm. of survival of telling our story from a place of being wounded which is pretty authentic for a Jew it isn't our dream it isn't our ideal. It's not why we exist in the world. But it does pervade history. For Sephardic Jews, it's a different kind of history. For Ashkenazi Jews, it's a different kind of history. For Jews in Yemen, who are neither, it is a very complicated history right now. For Iranian Jews, for Persian Jews, it is a very complicated political one for them in very recent history. And now again, how do they... So what I want to say is there that needs to be, and it certainly flavors so much of what we do in the world, we not only ache for justice, we work for it. That's to be a Jew. And on this night, you know, I wonder, right, the translation of Pesach, some of us shared this today, Pesach actually does not mean Passover. That's not what the original meaning is. Leil Shimurim is the original meaning. Pesach means the night of watching, night of guarding. Because in that night, and what was that night? That night was the angel of death. And if we, you know, we we can't imagine it. All the different artistic depictions are all horrifying, and no one really can imagine it, thank God. But to hear the wailing, but to hear the wailing from the hermetically sealed place where we have been slaved for 400 years, I don't know how to do that. I do know how to cry, though. And what's so powerful is that the final verse in, in at least this setting is, um, I sing that, 
I sing that on, on Tisha B'Av, on the ninth of Av, where the temple was burning. I sing that from a place of just tears. And that's, you know, so I really, I don't want to ache anymore. I don't want to perpetuate our own pain or anyone's. But the question is, is there a way, is there a place for the Jew to ache in this time? Not to dream of pain, either being perpetrator or victim, but to ache and to cry and then to sing Elio Anavi. Remember as a child singing Elio Anavi at the end of Shabbat. And I, you know, I was filled with like this Uncle Moishi songs and this joy of Shabbat and that everything was grand. I mean, it was literally Me'en Olam Haba, taste of the world to come. And when that goes away, it's just so sad. And, you know, I was with counselors who were intentionally choosing the songs that would make us all weep, and it worked. I cried so much. Um, and I think it was right of them to do. And that was because the whole world should be Shabbos. Right? That's the vision that, that we all are supposed to bring. And that kind of tear is actually also, in a very small way, the kind of tear that I feel as a Jew in the world, too. That it isn't yet Shabbos for us. And that is what teaches me to dream for it to be Shabbos for everybody all the time. So I really, I just want to say that question again. Where is the place of tribalism for the modern Jew? Because tribe is so dangerous. It's so dangerous. And it's so true. It's, it's so hard to deal with as American Jews, as modern human beings, as global citizens. We take this really seriously. And, you know, if it's my child in the day school in Paris, and that's really where I'm going to keep on coming to, and I have my own places of trauma, being in Israel last year during the Gaza War, right? it, no one's blameless. That's a terrible narrative. There's no we were peaceable and... But to be a target because I'm a Jew is not something so far in this year, this year. So how do we deal with it? Well, I don't have an answer to that. So <laughs> I, <don't laughs> I, was, I wanted you to, Vivian, please. <laughs> but what I really appreciate is for you to draw our attention to the question. And I'm very touched that you would do that. Um, it's an often an unspoken question, especially by a rabbi of a congregation, and perhaps it's the importance and the significance of Passover that's allowed, giving you the freedom to voice it. Um, you know, I think it's our blessing and it's our curse to be a tribe. I really do. I mean, my uh, own husband, you know, just his reason for not being religious at all is just because he says, oh, you know, tribalism is, is the, the source of all the enmity in the world. You know, one group hates the other, and it's not just us and Muslims. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, I take such great comfort in being part of this tribe. It's fun, you know, and so, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't have a resolution, but I just want to thank you for the brave, the courage to really just put it out there in a very calm way. It's it is what it is. And it's only visibly calm, just yeah. to be clear. Don't tell us. Yeah, okay. No, I'm perfectly fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. I just want to go back to something you said earlier, which struck me. When you talked about the blood hermetically sealing on the birth the next day, and you spoke of the analogy to the, the uh, midrash of being born and knowing everything and then being touched and forgetting it all. Here is a birth. Their lives as slaves is gone. It's to their life is totally different. Life being born. Mm. But in this case, with this, we are not allowed to forget. So rather than touching the meaning of remembering is ensured. No matter what Haggadah 
one chooses and then rejects and picks another <laughs> or keeps the ones you love. I can't protect. It's their first in essence would be what are we supposed to learn? Right. I mean it's it's all it's all of this, right? Say if you'll just say more. Well, I was gonna say that in the big picture the importance is not remembering all the horrible things that happened, but God rescued us. Right. That's what we're supposed to remember. That that paragraph, right, Omdi Malenu Mechalotenu, right? In every generation a nation comes to, to besiege us, to oppress us, Va Kadosh Baruchu Yatsilenu Adam. And the Holy Blessed One saved us from their hands. Mm-hmm. And what, I mean, that, I would say that the emphasis over and over, and you know that because there is a significant absence in the Haggadah that no one, not, how could Moses not be in the Haggadah? And in a traditional Haggadah, Moses doesn't appear. Actually, the hand of Moses holding the staff typically appears textually, <laughs> but not Moses, right? And so the centrality of God saving us, which goes to your point about it not being justice that I want to meet out with my arms, even though God knows and God does know that that, that primal response is there too, but calling to God to save and then going from this to Hallel makes it a theological move. I have to say that despite the fact that I think you're right about the question, what are we supposed to remember, and the mandate to remember, which feeds that so powerfully, it is still such a tremulous moment. Mm -hmm. To open that door is to say, especially in the context of the vagaries of Jewish history and all history, damn it, I'm going to open this door, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to trust that when my child opens this door, they're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And when we walk out through this door... We walk out free. Mm. But what is so intense in this awareness is we don't actually walk out the door. We open the door and then we close it. And I remember as a child, to be honest, what is my memory of opening the door, which was a job. No parent accompanied us. Mm -hmm. And actually it was a little bit out of sight, so he was even, you know, object permanence. I was so scared to be away from my my safety blanket, my my parents. Um, I hid behind the door when I opened it. I didn't know from it, but, but I, was, I was too afraid. I was too afraid. So I, I don't know that that's where I want us to end, but I do know it's an honest place to have this conversation come to a pause. I want to share, uh, we don't have to see this as where we would go, but the paragraph written by Erica Brown um, is one that I'd like us just to hear. I'd just like us to hear it. God, Master of the Universe, please make this world safe for our people this year. Next year, may we be in Jerusalem, but this year, please take care of the Jews in our holy city and in so many other cities, in Marseille, in Copenhagen, in Argentina, and Buenos Aires, Kansas and Seattle, Paris and Tunis, Sterot and Toulouse, Brussels and Donetsk. This Passover evening is a night of vigilance, Leil Shimurim. Please watch over us with divine care and compassion. Protect our sacred tombstones and graves from desecration. Protect our synagogues across the globe from swastikas and shattering glass. Protect our innocent children on their day school playgrounds and our Jewish communal workers in embassies and community centers. Pour out your wrath against the world's injustices so that one day you can pour out your love. Anim ma'amin. I believe that day will come. It is not here yet. Today we will await that day. We will not wait passively. We will partner with you in a covenant to protect our people and remove them from harm's way. And we will reaffirm in word and deed our daily commitment to justice, goodness, and kindness. Mm. It might not be the tailored language that you would choose to use at your Seder, but it cannot be ignored because it points to the fabric of our world and real experiences. It is so complicated, and yet it is real. And so one of the things I would never want to see happen is for ritual to become dislocated from the world when ritual becomes so detached from the very difficult reality of the world, I wonder what it begins to mean. Right. So I thought there would be only one uh, actual way to, to make the pause work. So, <laughs> Eliyahu Hanavi Eliyahu Hatishbi Eliyahu Eliyahu 
אליהו הגלעדי. במהרה בימינו יבוא אלינו עם משיח בן דוד עם משיח בן דוד all the way from the disgrace of the story where it began, from the indignity, to a place where we really, really feel joy and freedom, so much so that it becomes contagious way beyond the doors we might be afraid to open. Chag Sameach, everybody.